When thousands of angry construction workers and anti-vaxxers took to the streets of Melbourne in September, protesting the state government's vaccination mandate, journalist Paul Dowsley was in the thick of it, reporting live for Channel 7. Coming down in a line across Swanston Street behind the back of the protest group, which is... Suddenly, though, Dowsley became the story. Oh! Hey! Oh! Hey! 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 Protesters grabbed the reporter and shoved him against a bin. They even threw urine over him. Us, uh, both uh, Rick, my cameraman colleague here, and myself, uh, now being uh, covered in what I believe is uh, urine. Uh, I believe oh, that this uh, has been thrown, it got it in, in my mouth. Uh, it's oh. all... But the protesters weren't done. As Dowsley crossed to the anchor Mike Amor, viewers watched as a can was hurled at his head, a projectile that drew blood. And they're very passionate. They're... I've just been struck in the back of a, a back, back of a head by a can. I'm not sure whether you saw that, mate. Are you okay, Paul? Are you uh, that okay? really hurt. Look, they're passionate. They've had That's a not rough passion, time. Paul. That's they say not passion. with the state That's government the shutting down. Well, it was indeed a cowardly attack. But was it a sign of something more? Has the pandemic made people even more hostile towards journalists? Or are these kind of attacks only part of the story? And has the viral onslaught actually bolstered our standing with the public? I'm Nick Bryant and this is Journo a podcast by the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas, where we unpack how the news is made and how news is changing. You guys right to go? First things first, there are 19,538 confirmed aggregate cases of coronavirus in Victoria. That is 63 new cases since my update yesterday. I'm sad to have to report that there have now been... In 2020, in an effort to quash spiralling virus numbers, Melbourne went through one of the longest and strictest lockdowns in the world. For 120 days in a row, the Premier, Dan Andrews, fronted a nationally televised press conference. And we send our sincere sympathies and condolences to each of those five families, this will be a very difficult time for them, all of them. But one journalist at those conferences seemed to anger some members of the Twitter sphere more than the rest. If by themselves in regional Victoria going for a walk, you know, and there's no one else in the same square kilometre as them, it's a bit silly for them to have to wear a mask though, isn't it? But, but what's, the, what's the issue, Rachel? Why, why is it such a massive issue to have to wear no a... The health purpose if, if they're, they're not yeah, but that's in contact a kind of, with another human yeah, being. Maybe there'll be a time when we have the luxury of having those sorts of debates. You wear a mask because it's of some benefit. How much benefit? My name's Rachel Baxendale uh, and I'm Victorian political reporter for the Australian newspaper. You became known for asking some tough questions of Dan Andrews and, and you noticed pretty instantly that you were getting a very ugly response on social media. 
Yeah, it was quite bizarre and it really coincided with our second wave of infections in Victoria, which for those outside the state and, you know, those who've mercifully possibly forgotten about it, basically arose as a result of, of some breaches in the hotel quarantine system. And there were sort of a lot of lots of questions to be asked about how that had come about and also about, you know, the pace at which Victoria went into lockdown. Lots of questions to be asked about the contact tracing system and so on. And it was sort of at that point that this I Stand With Dan movement started on Twitter Some pretty kind of nasty personal attacks arose through that. At worst, it sort of resulted in private messages threatening really nasty, horrible sexual violence and, you know, death threats. I I just had to turn Twitter off completely. And, And it was Twitter in particular. Because, you know, I just couldn't, um, couldn't really use my phone without it, you know, blasting notifications at me. Rachel, I wonder how it affected the way that you do your job. I mean, did it make you more reluctant to ask the tough questions or, or did you take the completely opposite view? I'm not going to be cowed by the Twitter mob. I'm going to stick to my guns. That was absolutely my, my response was that it couldn't impact on, on the way I did my job. In saying that, I think journalists do need to be self-critical. I think it's a crucial part of, of being a good journalist. I am absolutely open to criticism, I think you have to be. And it's why, bizarrely enough, even though with everything I've just described, I have a policy of not blocking people on Twitter. I mean, a lot of these people were just absorbing political spin that the government had been putting out and deploying that against me. And I think it's the number one as a political journalist is to see through that and not be cowed by spin and and not be cowed by personal attacks. Rachel, presumably one of the reasons that you were targeted personally was not so much what you were saying, but but who you represent. You're the state reporter for the Australian newspaper. For those who don't know, that's a paper owned by Rupert Murdoch. And it's part of a stable that includes the Herald Sun in Melbourne, which is a tabloid newspaper that has been fiercely critical of Daniel Andrews, the Premier. They, they've labelled him Dictator Dan. And there's been criticism of that coverage. Do you think that you were singled out because you were seen as a kind of mouthpiece for the Murdoch press? Look, certainly I think there was an element of that and it really annoyed me because I see myself as a journalist who was going to work doing my job every day. I'm not an opinion writer. I don't even write the headlines. I mean, the reason I didn't take it personally and the reason I didn't let it affect the way I did my job is because none of these people had read the articles I was writing. They just had this particular view and this particular hatred of the media organisation I work for and used it as a way of making an ad hominem attack. I think there was sort of a a vulnerability in Melbourne last year and an insecurity. There was almost a you're either with us or you're against us kind of mentality. For some people that was you're either with Daniel Andrews or you're against him. And I think it was really important for me to point out that, you know, you can be constructively critical, which is how I see my job. I'm intrigued by these daily press conferences. We've seen them the world over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everybody, I want to set out our plan for managing COVID this autumn and winter. 
And I want you to cast your mind back exactly a year. Going through COVID, dealing with COVID, planning a reopening. Whether they've been delivered by Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York, Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, Boris Johnson in London. There are three key matters that um, Dr. Chant and I would like to convey this morning. Firstly, Gladys Berejiklian in Sydney, Daniel Andrews in Melbourne. And it's placed journalists in a different position. I mean, I speak as a former broadcast journalist who's often eyed press conferences as a moment to get your question on TV. There's a performative aspect to it. You're looking for a little bit of political theatre. Is that something you've noticed too? Look, there probably is. I mean, hopefully in some ways it's made us more accountable and made our jobs more transparent in some ways because these aren't just events that no one else listens to, that we rewrite the way we want them to be seen. Everyone's watching it and everyone can draw their own conclusions. I think that's a really great point, isn't it? People are actually getting to see how the how the media sausage is made. Yeah, and I guess that's another aspect of it is that contrary to what you were saying about it being a performative event, I think to the dismay of a lot of people watching these press conferences at home, we often as political journalists will stick to our old habits and our old instincts and we'll ask the same question three or four or five times in slightly different ways, hoping that we might actually get an answer to our question. And that's probably quite boring for the people listening at home, but it's our job to persist and try to get them to answer. Rachel, one of the things they always teach you at journalism school, one of the things they teach you as a trainee reporter is never to become the story. Uh, Do you worry that that has actually happened in these daily press conferences, that Rachel Baxendale, as well as Daniel Andrews, was becoming part of the story? I think that is something that we do need to try to avoid. And to some extent, sometimes it was inevitable. Daniel Andrews sort of got to a point, it wasn't just me, but where he almost weaponized journalists' names because he was sort of appealing to the I stand with Danners on social media and saying, look, oh, it's, it's this question from this journalist, the implication being that, you know, if they didn't like me, they didn't need to take my questions seriously. Rachel, when we come to write the history books about the pandemic, and maybe there's a chapter that will be composed about the role of journalists and the effects on journalists, I wonder what you think that will say from your perspective in Melbourne, which has become the most locked down city on the planet. I think when it comes back to it, I come back to the fact that the vast majority of communications I was receiving and and really helpfully, I mean, I got so many stories out of people contacting me saying, you know, hey, I'm a public servant and I'm really worried about the decision the government's made here or, you know, I'm a small business owner and I'm really struggling and no one seems to be listening to me or people working in hospitals, people from all walks of life. I hope that in some ways it's made our work more accessible and more transparent. Hopefully, ultimately, there there have been some unexpected benefits that have come out of it. According to the Edelman Trust Barometer, trust in the media around the world has plummeted over the last year or so. But interestingly, Australia has bucked that trend. The media standing has increased by 12 points during the course of the pandemic. The public broadcasters ABC and SBS rank the highest. Liam Mannix, the national science reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, has found his work more in demand than ever. You know, the pandemic's been really difficult for me personally, uh, mentally, it's been really tough. But as a journalist, I think I've grown more in the last two years than 
than I have in my whole career. You really get a chance to sit down with your craft and think about it and be reflective about it. You know, what you did right, what you did wrong at a really high level. And, you know, people are interested in it. People want to talk about it. People want to pull it apart. Look, I've, I've had a torrid time, Nick. It's been really tough. It's been a lot tougher for many other people in the community, but it has been personally tough. But as a, you know, a forge to get better at this job, I, I think there hasn't been anything better. Liam, you're not just covering a pandemic. You're also find yourself in the midst of an infodemic, this contagion of misinformation um, that your reporting is really sort of tackling in a way. Are, are you mindful of that? I suppose I am, Nick, yeah. I suspect journalism is not terribly well set up for reporting on a, a pandemic or a public health emergency. A lot of the news values that we use, the news judgments, you know, the old idea, if it bleeds, it leads... Some journalists see a lot of value in those. I suspect they don't work terribly well in a pandemic when really there is a role for journalism in cutting through the misinformation, as you say, in presenting public health information that people can use and possibly also in bringing the community together and giving them the information that they need to work together to, to beat the pandemic because I think we will end up in a lot of strife if we are fractured and we are fighting one another. So I think that's been reflected a lot in my journalism. There are plenty of spaces that you could go to to write about conflict in science and argument and scaring people and risk. I, in some cases, have tried to resist that and say, well, no, this is what the best evidence is. This is what the best experts say. Here is the information you need rather than, Here's what the best experts say, but here's a bunch of people who say they're wrong and that you're going to die. You're a science reporter, Liam, and often the mantra is follow the science. But, you know, during COVID, there has been a difference in scientific opinion at times. I mean, especially over things like the wearing of face masks. Some countries adopted that very early. Other countries, based on scientific advice, didn't. Um, You know, when you're trying to sort of find this consensual view, uh, how do you sort of go through the differing opinions within the scientific community. Mm. At times that has been really difficult to do, Nick, and we probably haven't been able to do it. Masks was a great example. Uh, At the start, the consensus scientific opinion which we reported was that masks don't work. The evidence turned out to be pretty crummy. As more evidence came in, we had to say to people, well, you know, the evidence is shifting and here's what the advice is now. Um, You know, that was partially about scientific communication, explaining how evidence can change. So in those cases, we we have seen some conflict. And I think you probably see the scars of that scientific conflict in the community now, where many people continue to believe that masks don't work. The example I will give you of where I think we got it really right is kids and COVID. Now, there, there has been an enormous amount of heat and light in this space with some scientists saying, oh, you know, it's going to kill kids. It's going to kill heaps and heaps of kids and they're all going to get long COVID and it's going to be awful. How can we do this to children? And so we we looked at that and we talked to who we thought were the absolute best experts. So the head of the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and the Royal Children's Hospital in Sydney and the head of the Paediatrics Association and the um, head of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And we presented 
their views as these are the authorities. These are the people to listen to. And we really you know, elevated that. And we did that first because you could see pretty clearly in the evidence, even as a layperson, that they were right and that they you know, had a lot to go on. But we also chose not to escalate and elevate the voices of people saying kids are going to die because realistically the evidence didn't support their position. I personally chose to go pretty hard and say, look, kids are not at risk. This is the thing. And I think when you talk to the experts now, they're deeply upset about the media coverage from a lot of places, which has left parents with a really skewed understanding of the risk that their children faces and a really high level of anxiety. And I think you could look at that and say, well, that is journalism operating as normal, looking for conflict, elevating conflict, and it's had this really negative public health outcome. Is that what we want to achieve as journalists? I'm not sure it is. So what you've done during the pandemic is try to avoid what's often called both sidesarism. Exactly. Um, the idea that you give equal weight to to both arguments and you leave the reader really to to make the decision. You are making those decisions. You are adjudicating as a science reporter. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nick. As a science reporter, there is an expectation that you will develop a level of expertise allowing you to evaluate the experts and the evidence. There probably, I don't think, is a lot of value in a science reporter who just says, here's a bunch of stuff. I don't know what it means. Here's a bunch of people. I don't know who is more expert than who. And at the start of the, the reporting, you know, probably I did more of that because I couldn't honestly tell you who the more credentialed experts were, what the higher quality evidence was. And I've worked really hard to get to a point where I feel like I'm more comfortable with who those experts are and where that evidence can be found. P people are coming to us because they expect a level of expertise from us. And I think we do a disservice to the reader to just sort of throw it open and say, well, here's a bunch of stuff that I read, you work it out. And what you've said there is really interesting because I think it points to two things. We have seen an elevation of science journalism. You know, these aren't the glamour boys and glamour women of our industry. These are often people who have struggled in the past to get their stories on air, to get their stories in the paper. But obviously now you are front page news. And another thing seems to be happening, which has shown there is a real appetite out there for quality journalism, for journalism that people can really trust. You're absolutely right, Nick. And I think that that probably supports my contention that people are looking for more than just here's a bunch of stuff that I read. They're looking for some level of leadership from their journalists. The best evidence that I have for this turning towards quality journalism probably comes in public knowledge subscription figures for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald versus some of our competitors who you might describe as more tabloid in their journalism. We have done extraordinarily well through this pandemic. I, I don't think that's a secret. We've attracted a lot of readership. We've really got a lot of engagement with our stories, in particular science stories. And I went through J school and they said to me at the time, you need to write for a 12-year-old. That's the, the level of reading comprehension. And I'm not doing that. I'm writing for people who have degrees. You know, I'm, I'm writing quite high level stuff and readers love it. Readers are lapping it up. We've got many thousands of readers who have subscribed to a science newsletter now, which, which is quite a dedicated a niche thing that you wouldn't think people would be drawn to. Liam, what, you, what you've told me, I think, is very interesting because 
you know, journalism, like everything during the pandemic, has has gone through a very tough and and torrid time. But but what you seem to be saying is that it's come out better as we start to see, hopefully, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, I, I don't know, Nick. Um, come out better. I think we have learnt some things of great value in reporting in a pandemic. I think we are much, much better at reporting the story of COVID-19 now than we were 18 months ago. And I think that's probably, you know, you'd expect that. The question you pose is, will we take any of these learnings to the way we cover news more generally outside a pandemic? And I think it's probably too early to say. Certainly, I, I, I think I will approach it as a better, more capable, more equipped journalist. I wonder if the media more generally might say, oh, you know, perhaps we should focus more on providing people valuable information rather than confusing them with conflict. But God, you know, as a person interested in science, it's, it's just far too early to say, I think, Nick. We'll have to wait till the data to be in. Australia, in in one sense, has had it very lucky in this pandemic. The lockdowns have been severe and the mental toll certainly extreme. But compared with much of the world, deaths have been relatively low, as have case numbers. For journalists overseas, their challenges have perhaps been greater and more personal. It's really been a kind of a privilege for me to listen as newsrooms have struggled to deal with these questions for the last 18 months. And some have done really well and some have struggled, but it's really interesting to be present, to be a witness to innovation as it's happening, to the reinvention of our craft in a way, and and to one of the great moral challenges that journalism has ever faced in history. Bruce Shapiro runs the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma, based in New York, and is a member of the Judith Nielsen Institute's International Advisory Council. It's involved immersion in a high degree of fear on the public's part, a high degree of political upheaval and uncertainty caused by the nature of the pandemic. So just on the craft level, you know, how you tell the story how you convey the nature of what's happened both at an individual and social level all over the world in the last year is an enormous challenge. There are newsrooms that have immersed themselves for a year in particular hospital wards, have spent days and days on morgue trucks, uh, have been reporting in communities uh, where older populations are decimated by So there's a huge amount of suffering that we've been exposed to as a profession. As Indonesia struggles through this surge in COVID-19 deaths, there are too many grieving families and not enough workers to help bury the dead. Italy's coronavirus epidemic, already the second most deadly after China, has taken another dramatic turn. India is being swamped by a second wave of COVID-19. One of the things that struck me early on, Bruce, and I was in New York when it became the epicenter of this global pandemic, uh, was the difference in previous danger stories that I had covered. There, there was was a plane to get you out of trouble. 
there was always a safe haven that you could go to at the end of the week or the end of the month. Um, and another crucial difference, your family was never alongside you when you were in, in war or disaster zones. That made this very different to cover. Well, certainly. And, you know, every journalist was navigating their own fears and their own family's safety and their own risk every single day going out. Now, I do have to say that what you describe is not new, right? Our colleagues who are journalists, local journalists in areas that are in chronic crisis, like parts of Mexico or the Philippines or Syria, Chechnya, Eastern Ukraine, journalists in those regions have lived with the balance of threat to themselves, the risk to their families, their own safety, that unremitting thing for a very long time. But what's new, what's different, is that in this pandemic, all journalists, every journalist in the world, became a crisis journalist covering their own community. Every journalist became a, a trauma journalist in a period of mass death and, and mass threat and mass fear. That is something we've never quite seen. And there was also the problem of not just confronting this story with your family alongside you, but often exposing your family to danger. I, I got covid fairly early on. I suspect that I got COVID from reporting about COVID and I gave it to my wife and my wife was very heavily pregnant at the time and got COVID far worse than I did and um, was almost hospitalised. In fact, a doctor told us she should go to hospital, but it was at that time in New York when ambulance drivers were really telling you, do not get in my ambulance if there's any way you can avoid it. So we didn't. We waited a couple of hours, her breathing improved. Um, I wonder what the sort of impact of, of that is going to be. I mean, I certainly felt a lot of guilt around that. I dare say other journalists who've been in that situation have felt that same level of guilt as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot going on. I, I, I think, first of all, whether it's guilt or what some psychologists are calling moral injury, we're beginning to question both the adequacy of our work and whether our work at some point becomes part of the problem or part of endangering others that we end up feeling complicit in. We know from studies of journalists in crisis can lead to higher rates of burnout or PTSD or other kinds of distress. But I, I also think there's something sort of existential about our role of journalists. There have been other times in history when the classical disinterested stance of the journalist no longer seemed adequate. And I think that's, you know, Nick, that's what you're describing. I found myself thinking back, for example, to um, the early 1960s and the civil rights movement in the United States. Well, I don't know what will happen now, but it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop, and I've seen the promised land. We want justice by any means necessary. We want equality by any means necessary. We don't feel that in 1964, living in a country that is supposedly based upon freedom... And a number of white reporters from northern newspapers uh, and TV stations went south to cover 
the protests and went with their disinterested journalist on the one hand this, on the other hand that toolkit, and found themselves being confronted with children being fire-hosed and having dogs set on them with the murders of nonviolent civil rights workers. And many of them came to feel that this disinterested stance was no longer adequate. And for a lot of reporters of that generation, that encounter with the violence of Southern segregation caused real turmoil and real argument about what the job of journalism should be. Some left major publications like Time magazine and went to little political magazines where they felt they could express their views more clearly. Still others went for a first-person voice, which had not been common in American journalism up until that point, in order to to say, you know, the, the subjective experience of this is the only way to get to truth. I think there's something similar here. We've seen this year, all of us as journalists were in one way or another in the middle of the story, the way that you and, and your family were in New York, a way that leaves, a, a way in which the only route to truth sometimes is through a personal perspective or through a challenge to both sidesism. I mean, there was an infodemic in America, especially before the pandemic. The, the sort of scourge of, of misinformation was really contaminating your body politic and obviously was a factor in the rise uh, of Donald Trump. Do you think, again, that this is a moment where sort of journalism has hit back, where fact-based reporting has hit back? There is still a lot of suspicion of the media, capital T, capital M, there's a fragmented body politic that is receiving a whole lot of information without a single act of journalism being committed along the way through social media, information about vaccines and QAnon and all this sort of stuff, which is somewhere on the spectrum from nonsense to very, very dangerous, life-threatening lies. That info system is still out there. I would argue, though, that actually after couple of decades in which people were saying, well, does journalism really matter? You can get all what you need on the internet and all this. Actually, the role of the trusted narrator, the trusted assessor of information, that filter that journalists play, I think is more important than it's ever been. Look, COVID-19 brought a vast amount of suffering to the world and therefore a vast amount of suffering to journalists in their own families, in their own lives, and in their own communities. It's really striking to me just how much innovation and ethical care and a sense of mission journalists, reporters, editors, producers around the world brought to this crisis. I think this has been a really heroic period, a period of courage, a period of innovation, and a period of compassion in which journalism has often stepped into the breach when other social institutions failed in their ability to protect people, to get information out, to make connection. Whether journalism comes out of this period stronger 
Then it went in is a complicated question. There are economic and political forces at work too. And we won't really know the answer for a while. But I certainly think that this is a period of of courage and insight and, and roiling change in journalism, which has more than met the challenge of the time. When I worked in New York City, I used to walk past the 9-11 Memorial in Lower Manhattan every day. My bureau was just across the road. And what I noticed early on in the pandemic was that there were no fresh flowers there anymore. I never thought I'd cover a bigger story than the attacks of September the 11th. But COVID-19 has been even more consequential. It's already had a transformative effect on the way that journalists work. Here on Journo, for instance, I've only ever seen the team that produces it in windows on my laptop. Remoteness and disconnection does not make for good journalism. We need to be in communities. We need to bear witness. We need to meet people face to face. We cannot be socially distant. But I do agree with what Bruce said at the end there. In some of the most trying circumstances I've ever witnessed as a journalist, I think the industry has risen to the challenge. Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithers, Nicole Kirby, with sound design by Bryce Halliday. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. And the commissioning editor for J&I is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryan. And next on Journo, a giant of journalism reflects on a lifetime in the media and the challenges that await us all. Journo.